All right, well, it's good to be back today. I do want to say um, just publicly that I appreciate Shiloh filling in last week, and I'm sure that that was a blessing. I just feel bad I can't listen to it. (laughs) We lost the recording of it, but I am very grateful for Shiloh filling in, and um, hopefully you guys had a, a good time of fellowship while we were gone. We had a great time with our family, had a lot of fun, <clears throat> but it is good to be back. Um, we are going to continue in our study of Second Peter today. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 in chapter 1, and the title of the message today is Our Blessed Assurance, Our Blessed Assurance. On the blessedness of assurance, Charles Spurgeon says this by way of introduction. He says this, Believe me, the life of grace is no dead level. It is not a thin country, a vast flat. There are mountains and there are valleys. There are tribes of Christians who live in the lowlands, who live between the lofty ranges of mountains in the midst of the miasma, where the air is stagnant and the fever has its home, and the human frame grows languid and enfeebled. Such dwellers in the lowlands of unbelief are forever doubting, fearing, troubled about their interest in Christ, and tossed to and fro. But there are other believers who, by God's grace, have climbed the mountain of full assurance and near communion. Their place is with the eagle in his nest, high aloft, they are like the strong mountaineer who has trodden, who has trodden the virgin snow, who has breathed the fresh, free air of the alpine regions, and therefore his sinews are braced and his limbs are vigorous. These are they who do who do great exploits, being mighty men, men of renown, uh, as only Spurgeon could say it. Um, but that's the reality of the Christian life. I've been. I've, I've been, uh, the first description he gave, I, I was there for many years in my Christian life as an early believer, just struggling with assurance. Um, because after spending many years as a false convert, when I was truly converted, I really probably took it to an extreme and struggled with assurance because I just didn't want to be deceived again. But I know what it's like not to live with assurance, to, to doubt your salvation, to be genuinely converted, but to doubt your salvation. Um, because I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think it was in our first in our first sermon, that, that there's a difference between being saved. Okay, there's there's many who are genuinely saved, but are not walking with the blessed assurance that God wants us to have. And it's those people, just like Spurgeon described, uh, the, the 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 believers who are walking with this blessed assurance that that is really a gift from God that He wants us to have. These are the ones who are going to do, like Spurgeon said, great exploits. Because you're not struggling with your own assurance and therefore you're walking in the, in the confidence and the assurance that your faith is genuine. It, it, it's the, and so hopefully you guys would desire that in your life. Hopefully you desire to, to have that kind of assurance. Uh, and I'm sure some of you do. Um, but this is a person, beloved, this is a person who is a dangerous weapon against the kingdom of darkness. It's a person that God can use. Somebody who, who is uh, assured of their own salvation. Because this is the person, they, they can say that, that come what may, right? No matter what life throws at them, they can say, like Paul says in 2 Timothy, for I know 
whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. To be able to say that, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what you go through, to have that confidence and that assurance, I don't think there's any greater gift, the greater thing to have in your life. question is, is how do we get this? How do we get this kind of, uh, what I'm entitling, blessed assurance like the song says? This blessed assurance. How do we, how do we get this? Well, is it, is it by the way that, that I've heard many even pastors tell people? I've been told that in my life. That the, that the day you make your, uh, what's commonly known as your decision for Christ, right? Write the date down in the front of your Bible. Hey, and, and, and am I saying there's anything necessarily wrong with doing that? No. But in my case, I wrote the date down. February 18th, 1990 was the date of my false conversion. And so I had false assurance because the, what they say is write, write this date down in the front of your Bible when you made this decision, when you repeated the sinner's prayer, and then, and then when the devil comes to make you doubt, you just look back to your Bible on the date that you wrote down. So you get many people that that's, that's their assurance. A prayer that they prayed maybe 30, 40 years ago. They prayed the prayer. They wrote the date down in their Bible when they were seven years old at Falls Creek. And since then, they've lived like the devil. It, it's the true, really, pandemic in our land today. These, these people, they're, they're everywhere. I was one of them for many years. I know I'm a Christian because I said the prayer back whenever. And, and there's been no evidence in my life of a love for Christ, of the things that we're going to talk about today. Genuine evidence is from the Word of God that gives us these assurance. So that is not how we gain this blessed assurance. Now again, if you remember the day that you were truly converted, praise God, there's nothing wrong with that. But that alone of just remembering a prayer that you repeated that somebody told you to repeat. It's not biblical assurance. You don't have that assurance from the Word of God. And so, we want to have this, we want to have this blessed assurance that comes from the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what, that's what we want to have. Listen to what the London Baptist Confession says about this in chapter 18. That, that chapter is entitled Assurance of Grace and Salvation. And it says this in paragraph 2. This certainly is not merely an inconclusive or likely persuasion based on a fallible hope. It is an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the Gospel. It is also built on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit about which promises are made. It is further based on the, on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. As a fruit of this assurance, our hearts are kept both humble and holy. Now there's a big difference having assurance the way the confessions describe it and remembering a prayer that you prayed one time. So... We're going to talk about that today. Because again, you can be genuinely saved, genuinely converted, and struggle with assurance. Okay, And I don't want you to feel bad if you struggle with assurance, but I want you 
as your pastor, obviously, to, uh, to have a confidence in your assurance. Because that's God's will for you and I. So let's, uh, let's, look at, let's look at the Scriptures, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11, through 11, and then we will go through it. <clears throat> now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So let's look at this. Let's look at this whole idea of, of assurance. And so my prayer for you, for all of you today, is that if you don't possess this assurance, that, that the Holy Spirit through the Word of God will, will assist you with that today. And if you do, then praise God. Don't take it for granted. So we're going to look at, on the back of your, on the back of your bulletin, our outline. Um, and I'll explain the outline more as we go, just for, uh, for their very short sentences. And I'll explain each one a little more as we go, especially the couple sub-points that I have. But the first point of the first main heading is this, um, or at the top, it says, in our pursuit of this blessed assurance, because it's something we need to pursue as Christians. In our pursuit of this blessed assurance, we're going to look at three things. And the first thing is this, gospel graces must be present. Gospel graces must be present. You could, word, you could use the word graces. The text actually said qualities. Qualities, graces, virtues. But I like the word graces. That's what some of the, uh, the uh, theologians of old use, but I really like that, these gospel graces. And he says, point number one, we're going to go through verse 5 through 7 and look at these particular graces that he mentions. Now he says, now for this very reason in verse 5, that just means because, okay? He's saying because of what I've mentioned before in the first four, first four verses, because of this, now for this very reason... Um, Apply all, applying all diligence. So, so because of verse 1 through 4, what was in verses 1 through 4? Well, primarily it's, it, it was the grace of God, right? His calling when He called us to Himself. He called us out of darkness to Himself. He gave us the gift of faith. He enabled us to believe and, and to commit our lives to Jesus Christ. Because of all this, because of all this, you need to apply Applying all diligence. But let me, let me speak about that first phrase for just a minute because it's very important. We have to establish this foundation. Anytime we, anytime we look at these um, you know, behaviors where the, where the Scripture's calling us to certain behaviors, we don't ever want to get the cart before the horse. Right? You don't ever want to get... The, in other words, the buggy doesn't pull the horse. Right? The horse pulls the buggy. The, the buggy doesn't fuel the horse. So 
this is so important that we understand this before we go forward. In other words, life, right? Life is not in the buggy, but in the horse. That's where the life's at. And so the, the life that's in the horse is pulling the buggy. Our life, we're talking spiritually, obviously, our life comes from verses 1 through 4, what God has done. God has given us life, right? God has caused us to be born again. He has given us new life. And so these behaviors, these fruits, are a result, a response, not the cause of life. The grace of God, in other words, enables us to live a godly, holy life. But we need to remember the grace of God also demands us to live a godly, holy life in the Scriptures. So, so our life, our fuel, in other words, comes from our calling that we talked about in verse 3. And what, what kind of call was it? Remember verse 3, it, it, it talks about the, the one who called us. And I don't even remember, I'm pretty sure I probably read this verse when we talked about this calling, but in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul, uh, writing to Timothy, reminds us of what this call is. He says, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. So it's a specific kind of calling. He calls us to a holy calling. So the, so the point is this, guys, before we really get started, if there's, if there's no pattern of growth okay, in a person's life, if there's no pattern of growth, if there's no pattern at all of growth, godliness, or righteousness, there can, then there can be no biblical assurance of salvation. That's what this text is telling us today. Luther said that they should, they should prove their faith by their good works. We know that we're not saved by works. But works are an evidence. Okay? So this phrase, so, so we just need to understand this, that we're not, we are not ever preaching some kind of works righteousness. These are, these are fruits. These are graces that are going to be present in a believer's life. Not in perfection. But they're going to be present, as we'll see. They need to be, they need to be increasing. They need to be growing. <clears throat> so, so he uses the phrase in verse 5, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. Your, 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 your Bible may say make a strong effort or make every effort. It just implies making a, a strong effort to provide something necessary. That's what he's saying. When God calls a person, He wants them to urgently obey this call without delay. So this is very important. Applying all diligence. Making every effort. And we're going to go through these in just a moment. But I, but I thought about this when I was really studying the meaning of this phrase. and the, the, it's, 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 it's meant to be urgent. This is very urgent to making strong effort. It's working at our salvation. Um, I thought of the phrase with, with great power. I don't know where it originally came from. I remember Spider-Man when his uncle... Right, his uncle told Peter Parker when he was dying, "With great power comes great responsibility." I don't know if that's where that came from, but that's where I remember hearing it, and it reminded me of this: this, this, with such a holy calling comes great responsibility in the believer's life. And Paul even says as such in Ephesians four one. Remember Paul, the first three chapters. What what was it? it he was telling us who God is. He was explaining doctrine, right? Teaching who God is and, 
and what He had done for you. And in verse 1 in, in, in chapter 4 is when it all changed. And He says this, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And that's, that's what's going on here. Peter didn't spend three chapters. He spent three, four verses. But that's what's going on here. Because of the One who called you, and because of the calling that He called you to, make every effort. Apply all diligence. And then He, start, and then he goes through the, the, the list of virtues or graces or qualities. And He starts with faith in verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your faith. So this would be the root of it all, right? Our faith. This is the faith that we talked about in verse, in verse, uh, in verse one. The faith that God, by His grace, gave us. This is, this is our faith. Where we, where we trusted in Christ as our Savior. This is our, another way to say it, it's our faithful commitment to Christ. This is what we're to build upon. This is what we're to add to. All these other virtues. This faith that we have, this, this faithful commitment to Christ, and he says supply. The NAS says supply. It says in your faith, supply moral excellence. That just means we're to, we're to supply or give generously. And I think, I don't remember, uh, some of your Bibles may say just add. You want to add to your faith these things. And he starts going through them. And, and really, commentators were, were kind of mixed whether, whether these uh, are in a particular order for a reason or not, whether they build on one another. It was probably 50-50, so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that um, you know, it starts with faith, ends with love, right? I think that's a pretty good indication. Maybe everything's sandwiched between them, but I don't think anyone's really any more important than the other. So he starts with... He says we're to supply, we're to give generously these other virtues to our faith. Which will be necessary, guys, for this blessed assurance. And so he starts with, in the NAS, moral excellence. I think if you, uh, if you have a New King James or ESV, it may say virtue if I'm not mistaken. But, the, but the, this phrase moral excellence, it means this, guys. It means a, a, a divinely given ability to excel in heroic, courageous deeds. And so think about that. When you think of somebody who maybe you've respected in your life and they have a moral excellence about him, and, and that's, that's kind of what you think about them. That, that you have a lot of respect for them, that they're very courageous, right? In standing for the truth. In standing on the truth, even if they're by themselves. That's what this moral excellence is. Do you, do you know what true manly, manliness is, guys? And this could, this could apply to women as well. But true manliness is Christ-likeness. That's kind of what this moral excellence is. Christ-likeness. Right? Christ spoke the truth. He, he was the truth. And it, it ultimately got Him nailed to a cross. But we all know that it was God's divine plan to save us from our sins. But this is what true courage looks like. This moral excellence. Then he says, he says, um, add to your, in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. Now do you guys remember I said 
Peter uses the word knowledge many times in this letter, in his letters, and it's and it's there's two different meanings. One of them is the saving knowledge when we first come to know Christ. One of them is more of a growing knowledge, and and sometimes they're very very close related. This this word here, he's talking more about the the growing aspect of it. So we're to add this knowledge. It's not a not an esoteric secret knowledge that that meant that the false teachers were known to to say that 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 we need to have, including false teachers of, of our of our land today, cults. You know, we've got this secret knowledge. You're not truly going to know God until you have our special revelation from God. Occultic practices uses this kind of esoteric secret knowledge. No, this is just simply knowledge of God's will. If we're to grow, if we're to have the assurance, we're to, these are one of the this is one of the, the virtues, the the graces that we need to have is a knowledge of God's will. And as a result of this knowledge, we gain spiritual prudence. We, we, we gain the ability through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit to have, to have spiritual uh, forethought which, which governs our actions in the Christian life. And so what does this look like? It looks like it leads us to being, to, to being led by the Spirit. We're able to be led by the Spirit. We're, we're, able, we're, we're given wisdom from God. Given wisdom and discernment for, for different situations in life. You're not always going to have an exact verse verbatim to tell you what decision to make. But it's, it's knowing God's Word as a whole and being in tune with His Spirit, comes to this knowledge. I hope I'm making sense. But that's why this is so important. And to add to, add to this knowledge, self-control. This is a very important one. We're in verse 6 now. Self-control. Literally, the phrase means holding oneself in. Avoiding excess. And you may be surprised it's not just avoiding excess of bad things. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. We must be sober and moderate in our love to and use of the good things in life. See, we can, we can exercise a lack of self-control even with those things that are good. Things that are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves is what Henry's saying. We could, we, could, um, we could exercise a lack of self-control with food, right? Of course, we know it's I mean, sinful to, to be involved in gluttony. Our, our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God's called us to exercise self-control. Um, things like hobbies. These things are good things. I hope you have hobbies. I hope you enjoy food. Comforts. Um, recreations. All of these things are good things. But we are called as believers to exercise self-control even with these things. If any of these things begin to dominate our lives, then we could be revealing that we're, we're not exercising self-control. What would that look like? Um, you know, maybe, maybe you're a guy who loves to, loves to go fishing. Nothing wrong with fishing. I love fishing. But if, you're, but if you're fishing or whatever hobby it is starts taking up all of your weekend to where you've just kind of pushed 
assembling with the saints, you're not exercising self-control. Or maybe you're, and I'm using guys for example, but maybe you're, you know, you're fishing or you're hunting or your golf or your hobbies has really dominant is really dominating your life to where you're not being the kind of husband and father you're called to be. All of these things, they're not sinful in and of themselves, but we need to have self-control as believers. We need to be spiritually disciplined. And obviously this would apply to the sinful temptations as well that are out there. In the, in the Hellenistic world of Peter's day, that, that phrase just means um, that there was a heavy Greek influence to the, to the people that Peter was writing in these areas. This phrase, self-control, pertained to sports. And we can see that in, in, for, as an example of that because I think the sports world, is, it's easy to understand this. 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. In all things, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So obviously, we know if you're going to be an athlete... A successful athlete, you have to exercise self-control. You have to exercise self-control in what you eat, what you put into your body, and the amount of sleep you get, on and on and on. That's easy for us to see. It's the same idea. God is calling us to to live a life of self-control as a believer. We need to be controlled by what? The Holy Spirit of God. Being led by the Word of God. And so it's really submitting to the control of the indwelling Spirit. That's what it means to live this kind of life. And, um, and, and these, these things, these things do, these things do complement one another. As we grow in this knowledge, these things become more of a reality. The next one is perseverance. The next one is perseverance. And in your self-control, perseverance. It means remaining strong, even, even during unwelcome toil and hardship. You ever had, Unwelcome toil and hardship. Yeah, (laughs) it seems like it never ends, right? You get through one thing, and here's another thing in life. And so this perseverance, an illustration of that would be a man pursuing a career must persevere through much. I think of the different people we have even in here who who, who went through college, who made it through college. I made three years of it. But But you went through college. We have people in the medical field. Rocky is a retired engineer. That was a lot of college. You had to persevere, did you not? You had to persevere through a lot. Times you didn't want to go to class. Maybe persevere through some bad grades that you had to overcome. Just all kinds of things. You, anything you do that you're called to do that's worth anything requires perseverance. And the Christian life is one of perseverance. And you could apply that to every area of life. Any, any area of, of success is going to require perseverance. And so what, what has life what has life thrown at you, beloved? What will it throw at you? And I think really a better phrase, that's, that's kind of the phrase we use, the language we use, but better stated, what has God given you up to this point by way of unexpected toil, trials, hardship? And we know that there's going to be more because we live in a fallen world. But please know this, that it's for your good. It's for our our good. 
It's for your good. Turn to Romans chapter 5 real quickly. Romans chapter 5, just three verses, verses 3 through 5. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul says this, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because God, or because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. But do you hear that language, guys? Especially in verses 3 and 4. We exult in our tribulations. Why? Because understanding and knowing that these tribulations, tribulation that God brings into our life, that God allows, it's for a purpose to bring about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, beloved. The language here is to prove to you, not to God. God knows all about your faith. Whether it's genuine saving faith, whether it's false faith, whether it's strong faith, whether it's weak faith. No, to prove to you. This proven character is the idea of proving that our faith is real. It comes through tribulations and brings up about perseverance. And it gives us this assurance that when you've gone through so much and you continue to walk with Christ, it brings about this what, what the Roman says, this proven character. And, and what follows that is hope. I hope you can see that. And then listen to what the Puritan Matthew Poole says. He says, he calls it, he's talking about perseverance, but he calls it patience. Patience. He says, that Christian fortitude whereby we bear afflictions and injuries so as to persevere in our duty and without being moved by the evils that attend us in the doing of it. You know what I think Matthew Paul is saying right here? Satan wants to destroy you, beloved, and me. He wants to destroy you through trials. Okay? The trials that God allows... And we know that through reading Scripture, a lot of times He uses the devil to accomplish these things, like in Job's life. The devil wants to destroy you through trials. That's His purpose. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to destroy you. He wants to turn it. He wants to turn the very trial into a temptation for you to sin against God, to become angry at God, to maybe blaspheme God, or maybe be involved in other fleshly sins and then ultimately to quit, to walk away from God. That's Satan's desire of trials. But God means it for good. We know that, right? We know later on in Romans 8.28, we know that verse. But he, he does, he means it for good. Why? Like Paul said in, in Romans 5, that you may persevere in it, and as a result, be given this proven character, proof of saving faith. What does it look like personally to me? This is what it looks like personally to me that I have walked with Christ for 25 years and I have been through, for lack of a better phrase, a lot of crap in 25 years. Spiritually, 
with different people. My own trials, the trials of life, trials from my faith. I would have quit a long time ago if it wasn't real. So when I read Romans 5, I see exactly what it's saying. It's through the trials. If this thing wasn't real, I would not waste my time. But it is real. Because I see that my faith is growing stronger, not weaker. Because God is at work, right? It's God who began this good work. It's God who's going to cause His people who are really His sheep to endure. He's going to cause you to persevere. He's going to preserve you. That's the reality of Romans 5, 11. He's going to give you through the tribulations, perseverance, and through the perseverance, proven character, and through the proven character, hope. And you begin to grow strong. And you begin to see that I'm walking with Christ to the very end. Not because of me, but because I see this God who has me. Is this making sense? Amen? Alright. So next we see godliness. Next we see godliness. <clears throat> in verse 7, or the end of verse 6, in your perseverance, godliness, this is just simply reverence for God and other authorities. Okay? The ungodly, in case you haven't noticed, beloved, the ungodly have a problem with authority. So what does it mean to be godly? You don't have a problem with authority. God's authority and the authority that He has established. We see a glimpse of that in the chapter 2, even dealing with the false teachers. Look at verse 10. These, who are the, these false teachers, especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. They despise authority because they're ungodly. And so in verse 3 in, in, in chapter 2, we looked at last time, it says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Remember we looked at that? So what we have here in verse 6 is the imperative, right? To add this godliness to our, to our life. And so what we have here is the, the imperative in verse 6 standing on the indicative in verse 3. In other words, we've been given this, that's what it says in verse 3, and now we must pursue it as well. Okay, We've been given it, but God commands us to pursue it. One's an indicative, one's an imperative. And so we've been called to godliness. I don't think that should be a surprise that God's calling His people to godliness. We even see it in chapter 3, verse 11. Because of the fact of His second coming. We can see it again in, in chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way at the second coming of Christ, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So you see this, this holy calling that God has for His people. And then in verse 7, we add to our the, uh, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So real quickly, the brotherly kindness, guys, it's loving the family of God. And the, and the love that He mentions, that's more of just love towards all people, even your enemies. Right? We have been called as believers in Christ to love our enemies. How do we love our enemies? Those who would oppose us. I mean, there's many ways we can do this. Obviously, acts of kindness. But probably the two primary ways, what does Jesus say? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. 
And then obviously, preach the gospel to them if we're able. That's the greatest way you can love your enemies is to tell them the truth, to pray for them, to be kind to them. But this brotherly kindness, loving the family of God, and of course, all of this love in the brotherly kindness, whether it's to the people of God or to the world, it's agape love, right? God is calling us to agape love. It's not, it's not simply emotional love. Now, emotions can go with it, right? But it's sacrificial love. It's a servant kind of love. It's a commitment. That's what love looks like. I love you not necessarily because I feel something, because, but my love is going to be demonstrated, but I am committed to serving you. And so how can I serve my brother or sister in Christ? Right? How can I serve my brother or sister? That's the question you and I need to be asking. Not how can they serve me? How can I serve them? How can I serve my brother or my sister? What did Jesus say? And we're to follow in His footsteps, right? I did not come to be served, but to serve. That needs to be our attitude as followers of Christ. With our brothers and sisters. How can I serve my brother or sister? How can I demonstrate to them? Not, and again, I stress this, because we're all prone to this same thing. Well, my brother and sister is not serving me the way that I think. The question needs to be, we need to reverse that. And say, no, I'm going to be the one initiating the serving. Just think if we all live like that. You get all these Christians serving one another. It even says outdo one another. But just think if everybody had the opposite mindset. Everybody's just waiting on to be served. It could create disasters in a church. So I think, and I just, I just have discovered this from um, walking with the Lord. That that's a great way to connect with other believers is by serving them. By serving them. You want to know that one of the greatest ways to make friends? Serve them. Who doesn't want to be friend with somebody who just decides to love you? I, I am drawn to those kind of people. So I think that would be, that would be the uh, exhortation from the Word of God to us. That we need to go out of our ways to serve each other. Pray and ask God to help you in that area. And I'll do the same. How we can serve one another. And so this is what we're called to. Love. Loving God and loving others. Right? The first and second greatest commandment. How do we demonstrate that we love Christ? We obey Him. We obey His commands. How to demonstrate that we love others? By serving them. So that's point number one. It will move faster. Second, uh, a couple subpoints under heading one is this: gospel graces must be present. And the first subpoint under that is that that our life. This is when I said I would give a little further explanation. Your life, our life, is going to be fruitful when these graces are present and increasing. That's what we see in verse eight. In verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's connecting, he's connecting uh, the, the word for, he's connecting 
verses 8 through 11, really with, with verses 5 through 7. If these qualities, if these graces that we just went through in verses 5 through 7 are present, right? Are present in a person's life, are present in your life, and are growing, then their knowledge is fruitful. Now this knowledge he's talking about now is specifically the saving knowledge of Christ. Okay? They are fruitful in their saving knowledge of Christ if these qualities are present and are growing. What is he saying? Their lives. Who's Peter? The readers he's writing to. And your lives, beloved, your lives are bearing witness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. When these things are present in your life, when these things are growing in your life, you're going to bear fruit. Listen to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the what of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit. Very similar to these graces we're going through. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You hear that? Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and verse 14. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He is, talking, he is, he is making a comparison to unbelievers and believers. That's the simple comparison here in Romans 8. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection? Do you see how it is we attain biblical assurance? I hope you're beginning to see it. Hopefully many of you guys already were already aware of this. And so beloved, these graces that Peter is giving is evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God at work in you. As you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 10. Not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Which, again, as we'll see in chapter 2, describes the false teachers. In other words, Peter is saying, we're going to see the false teachers, they fail the test. They fail the test. They're ungodly. They don't bear fruit. And so this is real important to know, guys. Up to this point, only something that is alive produces growth. Only something that is alive can grow. So where there is no spiritual growth, that is a sign of spiritual death. Okay? And secondly, we see, the second sub-point we see, um, under, under point number one, gospel graces must be present. Fruitful, we're fruitful when these things are present and increasing, but blinded when absent. Blinded when absent in verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Blind, a person who is unable to discern his true spiritual condition. There's no worse place to be. Blind or short-sighted, this phrase, it, it, it means blind to spiritual and heavenly things. In other words, they only see the things of this world. 
They only see the things of this world. They can't, they can't see the things of the Spirit of God or understand them or be, even be aware of them. And so he says that this blindness, it's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual, this is a reality for those who lack these qualities. That's what he says in verse 9. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3 when he told Nicodemus? Very familiar passage. Unless one is born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Most of the time we think of, hey, if you're not born again, you're not going to go to heaven. And that is true. But that's not all it's saying. Unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. Even here and now. There's no... There's no understanding of spiritual things. He can't understand the things, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He can't understand the things of the Spirit of God because there's no life in Him. He simply sees the things of this world. But he's blinded to the spiritual realities, even his spiritual condition. That's why mockers can mock. Because they're blind. They don't understand the condition they're in. They don't understand that they're a heartbeat away from standing before a holy God. And if they're not covered with the righteousness of Christ, they're going to be judged for their sin. There's a blindness to that. A blindness to the urgency of it. Paul says a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He can't see them. He he doesn't understand what all the fuss is about Christ. What's all the fuss about Jesus Christ? It's a man who died on a cross. It's a man who is fully God. It's a man who paid the debt, the penalty that is upon you if you die in your sins. He suffered the wrath of God in the place of those who would humble themselves and repent and believe and surrender to Him. That's what's significant about Christ. And He rose from the dead. And He's your only hope. But if you're not born again, you can't see those things. You can't understand those things. There's a blindness. There's a blindness. And it says this, the second part of the verse, having forgotten His purification from His former sins. That phrase literally means to receive forgetfulness. This person has forgotten his profession of being saved and delivered from his sins. I think that's what the verse is primarily describing somebody who has at one time professed to be received purification, to be forgiven, to be cleansed. This person, in other words, this person is not living as a forgiven sinner who has been cleansed. Peter is saying that a godly life is evidence of somebody who has received forgiveness of sins and been cleansed from their sins. That's the whole argument of this text. Now this could describe even a believer who falls into sin. Sin is deceitful. And so this could describe even a believer who for a season, his sin has robbed him of his confidence and made, it, made him unable to have true biblical assurance because of his sin. Absolutely, that can be a reality in a believer's life. For a season. But someone, beloved, here's the point, but someone 
who completely, who completely lacks these qualities. Again, there's, there's no presence of them. There's no growth. Knows nothing of true conversion. Nothing. And that's what, that's the lie of so many church leaders. Just write the date. Don't let anybody ever cause you to doubt. And there's, there's going to be multitudes, Jesus says, on that day. Lord, Lord. I walked the aisle. I did this. I was baptized. I professed. I was sincere. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. I never knew you. That's the reality of what's... That's going to be a reality for many people. Listen to what John Calvin says. He says, it then follows that those who do not strive for a pure and holy life do not understand even the first rudiments or the starting point of faith. Again, what kind of a calling is it? A holy calling. And this is the picture of so many professing Christians in our land. It's the picture of the the church of Laodicea in Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 3 where He says says this to the, the church at Laodicea. He says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's what they say about themselves. But here's the reality. He says, You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And that's the condition of so many people. Blind what? To their true spiritual condition. And there's only one solution. Preaching the Word of God faithfully under the power of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that will awaken them. And it's what they hate to hear the most. But God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. That's God's way. I didn't come up with the way. That's God's way of saving sinners, His people. Point number two, genuine examination must be made in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and election or choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Genuine examination must be weighed. What does Paul? Paul says it twice. I think at 1 in 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Examine yourselves, right? That's what Peter's saying here. That there needs to be examination made. Therefore, linking this verse 10 to what he said previously, God's grace should lead to making a strong effort. That's what we see here. We see that same word, uh, all the more diligent, make a strong effort. It's really making it the highest priority. This needs to be priority number one in a person's life. To examine yourself. To make sure of your calling, of your election, of Him choosing you. And He says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling, choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Practice. It just means daily conduct. Your lifestyle. What does your lifestyle look like? I think it's easy to see when we look at 1 John 3, 9. He says, no one who is born of God, right? No one born again. No one who is born of God 
practices sin. There's a break in it. It doesn't mean He calls us to perfection because we're being sanctified. So it's not perfection, but there is indeed a change of direction. A change of affection. Peter is not teaching salvation by works. Amen? Amen? I hope you guys understand that. Peter is not teaching salvation by works, but salvation with works. Salvation that accompanies works. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10. These works that come as a result of salvation. And so, beloved, do these qualities that we're looking at. Do these qualities that we're looking at in these verses. Accompany your profession of faith. The application is here. Do they accompany your profession of faith? He wants us to be certain of our calling and election. Again, what kind of what kind of election, what kind of calling is it in Ephesians 1 4 with which Shiloh addressed last week? Listen to this language. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then the verse we looked at earlier, 2 Timothy 1 9, God called us to a holy calling. You notice it doesn't say God called you to an unholy calling. God called you to just live. He saved you. And now He just wants you to live like the devil. No, but that's what a lot of people think. No, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, Titus 2. Now, ultimately, it is the imputed righteousness of Christ that makes us holy. We all agree with that. We're not perfectly holy we don't live a perfect, sin, sinless life. It's obvious, it's, it's ultimately that we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. We are wholly in position before God, but we cannot forget passages like Romans 6 that, that, that teaches us so clearly that we've been called to walk in newness of life as those who are no longer slaves to sin. So again, it's not perfection, but it is indeed a Change of direction is repentance. These things need to be evident in our life if we're to have true biblical assurance. And he says, if these things are, if for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. This is not talking about simply sinning. You will never sin. No, we know we, we, know we wrestle with sin. We're commanded to confess our sins, understanding that His cleansing is there daily. No, this is talking about Falling away into apostasy. You will never stumble. God will preserve you. You will not fall into apostasy like the false teachers that we'll see in verse in chapter 2. I'm not going to read it just for sake of time, but we'll see that. That they fall away. They were, it says like a dog to its vomit. These false teachers specifically return to their wicked, corrupt, immoral lives. And so, beloved, do you know what all of this is a picture of? I, I mentioned it earlier, just real briefly. It's all a picture of Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what the language of these verses are. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
It's, it's, because of, it's because of verses 1 through 4 that God has called us, that God has saved us, that He has given us His Holy Spirit. Now He is at work in us, energizing us to live out this Christian life. So the question that everybody needs to ask themselves, is God at work in you? Paul Washer says the evidence that somebody has been saved is not a one-time prayer that they prayed, but it's, are you trusting in Christ presently? The evidence that you've believed is that you keep believing. The evidence that you repented is that you continue to repent. That's what this language is saying. No man is qualified to tell another man that... Brother, I know you're saved. The Holy Spirit is who tells us that we're saved. Now, obviously, I have a pretty good suspicion, idea, but, but you have to remember Judas. He fooled all the other disciples. And, that, and so that's what the text says. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's where biblical assurance comes. When we look at the Scriptures, when we... When we have the presence and the indwelling and the witness of the Holy Spirit confirming in our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. Do you see the evidence of these things? Do you love and adore Christ? Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. Somebody who loves Jesus Christ. Because if you have a love for Christ, you're going to desire to do what He says. And what He says, it just means He he is called the Word. He is the Word. We desire to obey Him. We fail. We trip. We stumble. Yes. Not stumble like this into apostasy. But our heart's desire, our affections are, we love God now. So that's the, that's the pattern of our life. He is the One producing all of these things in us, beloved. He is the One who will protect us from stumbling. Listen to Jude 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's that same word. To keep you from falling away. To the one, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. That's why we worship Him. And that really that's really going to help us finish in this last and third point, really what Jude said, that He's going to help us to stand in, 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 verse, in verse 11, to, to make it to the end. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And lastly, point number three, great rewards are the result. That's what we see here in verse 11. In this way, He says, for in this way, what way? The constant pursuit of holiness, which produces both assurance and perseverance. In this way, he says, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This whole language of, of being abundantly supplied to you, beloved, it's, it's like the athlete returning from the Olympic Games, right? It's like the athlete returning from the Olympic Games and being received with what? A triumphal welcome. That's what this is a picture of. A triumphal welcome. It's the language of Paul in 2 Timothy 4 to Timothy. 
I have fought the good fight. Remember the context, 2 Timothy? He knew that his time was coming. That he was about to... That his race was about over. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Paul wasn't saying, I'm limping in. No, I have fought the good fight. I have endured to the end. I have kept the faith. And he was ready for, for this language that Peter is saying. And so, beloved, he who began a good work, in closing, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Okay? Take him at his word. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you are His, you will persevere because He will preserve you. It's not ever God's will, beloved, to go back to the beginning of the message. It's not ever God's will for you and I to limp, to limp through our Christian life wondering if we're truly saved. That's not God's will. That is not God's will. 1 John 5.13 says this, these things I have written to you, these things, what things? Everything he wrote up to that point. The first five and a half chapters. Or four and a half chapters. Which was really just given, given these believers test of whether their faith is genuine. He says, all these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. That's God's will. Beloved, when you're staring death in the face, which all of us are going to do, and it happens all kinds of different ways, some of us will be taken out, we're not expecting it, some of us will see it coming, but this is something that you need to have. This assurance. You need to have assurance in your Christian life for God to use you the way He's intended to use you. Again, I know what it was like for the first several years, just kind of limping my way through. Wondering if I'm saved from day to day. Well, I think I am today, but I don't know. I would have loved to have been taught some of this stuff and seen God's, really just His grip on me. But it just came down to me really believing the Word of God and not my emotions. And so lastly, beloved, it is... It is your highest priority in life. Okay, I'll just close with this. It is your highest priority in life and it's God's will for your life that you live this Christian life with this blessed assurance of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, Lord, that is, that is clear. <clears throat> we thank You, Father, for our salvation. And Lord, I just pray, God, for anybody in here, anybody who may hear this, Father, um, your people, Lord, who truly know you, that are struggling with assurance, Father, I pray that you will give it to them. Lord, I pray that they will see, God, um, just what your word says about these things, Lord, that we will not believe something because some man told us. But God, we will look at this assurance from what the Bible says, that you want us to have this assurance and that we can have it, Lord, that it can be genuine that it can be that it can endure any trial any temptation any hardship even death itself god we can know that you have saved us 
and that and that we are yours through the through the witness of your spirit god and the truth of your word so father i just pray that you will do what only you can do something i can't do or anybody else can do lord i pray that you will give your people in our fellowship god um if there's any who don't have this blessed assurance lord that you will give it to them god and lord we just thank you and love you for the clarity of your word we thank you for the new birth, God. We thank you for new affections that you give us at the time that you save us. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.